you're listening to Reba Radio, the podcast. From 18th to the 26th of November 2021, our annual inclusion festival took the form of a dedicated radio station broadcast live from the bookshop at the Reba's HQ in London, with me, Marsha Ramroop, the Director of Inclusion at the RIBA, hosting the discussions. Reba Radio, the podcast, is the speech-only content from that radio station, themed and edited for your easy consumption. We suggest you make your way systematically through all episodes from the intro to the end to help you effectively on your inclusion journey. We hope you enjoy it and find it useful and applicable. If you have high CQ strategy awareness, you're really alert to and observant of what's happening in both yourself and your organisation, but also in the person, the organisation that's different to you. And one of the first steps to increase your CQ awareness is to notice but not respond too quickly, take time to make sense of what you observe. Uh, We form a hypothesis, we make a judgment uh, prematurely, we're in danger of uh, being wrong. And one of the techniques to manage this is to describe, interpret and evaluate. So you describe to yourself what's happened to be certain uh, not to interpret or evaluate prematurely. Consider your description. Be sure it's exactly what occurred. Then next, consider an interpretation of what you described, but try to do this without judging or evaluating. And once you're confident that your interpretation is a good one, uh, then and only then evaluate the situation. And if you use this three-step process, It forces you to take your time and be aware. It forces you to create procedural changes to mitigate that impact of hidden bias. Now, Jeremy Till and Indy Johar, they're joining me to discuss organisational and self-awareness. And I'm going to ask them, if if I could, to introduce yourself, but also to state whether you think that those in the architecture sector are generally organisationally aware. If I can start with you, Jeremy. So I'm Jeremy, I'm Head of St. Martin's and Pro Vice-Chancellor at the University of the Arts. And so in answer to your question, I mean, it's difficult to kind of have a blanket answer, but I'm kind of concerned within the architectural profession that in in placing itself and positioning itself as as a liberal institution and the RIBA doing that, I think it actually takes too much for granted in those kind of liberal views. And you can actually see that in some of the so-called more conservative professions, such as law, that actually positive action has been going, been ongoing for much longer than it has in the architectural profession. So I think it's also sort of being quite honest with ourselves about where we stand in relation to these issues and not assuming that because we are a liberal profession that those liberal values are carried through in the way that we we respond to issues such as diversity and inclusion. Well, let's pick up on, on that idea of, of, of being a liberal profession shortly, but Indy, could you introduce yourself and state what you think about uh, the organisational awareness of those in architecture? Um, yes, uh, my name is Indy Johar from Dark Matter Labs. I suppose I would say that... Um, I would say the architectural profession is undereducated in terms of actually management and organizational theory and capacity. I mean, I think it's a fundamentally, you know, you, you don't look for organizational innovation in architecture. You, you, you hardly ever see it. Um, 
and I think we've been, you know, we've been for lagging, I would say, large-scale contemporary business as an organizational uh, framework for a while. I think that's just a function of the nature, that's a structural function of the nature of the profession, nature of education, uh, and also, I think, to do with the, the, the medium, small-size nature of the organizational structures that architecture works in and also it's to do with the economics of it so i want to put it down that i think there's a, a much more structural lag going on in terms of the organizational capacity of the profession itself um, and organizational innovation takes investment capacity specialism which i just don't think we invest in that point, actually, that's something that I've really picked up. And not only just speaking to so many people across Reba Radio, but the fragmented nature of the profession. There's a sense that even whilst you're at um, uh, doing architecture school, um, that sense that you, you, the, the ideal is to leave and set up on your own. Uh, does that uh, play into this idea of, of you know, not having a coalesced uh, approach to organisational development? Indy? I mean, so I think, I think this is a really important point, but it has very subtle nuances in it, which I think are worth mentioning. So if, we, if our profession is designed around egocentric designers, i.e. the idea of an ego design, then the idea of anyone, um, the idea of fragmentation becomes inherent in the profession itself because it's actually not healthy for lots of people to be suppressed by the thesis of a single ego. So I think, I, I think if we want to make a transition, we have to start to think about a post-ego design modality and that requires quite a different behavior and that would uh, unlock that. So I, I don't blame people for wanting to set up their practices. I think that's a function of the nature of what we're prioritizing. And the, as a result of it, we get massive losses. So, you know, the setup an organization takes three to four to five years to get to the same level as what, what organization you le left. Maybe the investment is significant. We don't get any of the knowledge accumulations. We don't get much of the uh, aggregate effects as a result of that. So I think it is an issue, but I think it goes back to something much more profound, which is the nature of how we design. Are we an egocentric design system or are we actually an outcome-centric design model? And I think that has fundamentally different behaviours and with there lies, lies everything else. Jeremy, you're nodding away there with that idea. What is it you agree with most? <laughs> I, well, I agree. I completely agree with, with Indy about the lack of kind of organisational nous. But I think also that beyond that, and I agree also the kind of fragmented nature of, of the profession um, makes these kind of more overarching discussions difficult. But what I do think that we need to face up to is still the kind of the prevailing values as a whole about architectural culture, in which you still are working with pretty much a patriarchal system of power and that is reflected in what India said through the egocentric nature of so much of the profession, in which, you know, only 10 years ago, I called out the Royal Institute of, of, of um, Scottish Architects for having a male-only conference, you know, only 10 years ago. That, that was seen to be an acceptable thing to do. And when, when, when I called them out, they said, well, we, we've got to keep our quality up, which is kind of a disgraceful thing to say. And even now that Part W, who I've got huge respect for, are calling out the World Architecture Festival for, for having a lineup which is mainly male, they do have women, but not, but completely white. So there is within our culture a whole set of 
of systems and values which really need to be need to be called out and need to be challenged and if we are going to get to and we need to face that really honestly as as, as institutions should be doing anyway so indy what would you like to see these institutions do in order to become more aware and, and tackle those values as they're being perpetuated at the moment I think, again, it's such a big question at so many different levels, right? So I, I think everything Jeremy said is absolutely right. And I think, however, I kind of also worry that hmm, I, I, th I think there's a fundamental question in play, which is architecture has been, and certainly the architectural profession has been a function of capital and has been a function of actually a patriotic capital structure largely so and that that goes to jeremy's point which is kind of the illusions we tell ourselves um the, the you know the roba is not an advocate of spatial justice it's not an advocate for uh the just spatial environments for all citizens in the uk right it's an advocate for good design or what it perceives to be good design. And I think the, the problem starts at that level in a way. What are, we, what, what are we benchmarking ourselves towards? If we benchmark ourselves from a theory of what we perceive as good design, peer reviewed in some fashion, and even if it's sustainable, um, th there's a really much more structural question about are we, are we advocates for the outcomes and the just outcomes for everyone in the UK and beyond? In which case we'd be a very different profession and would also be a very different type of uh, you know, presentation of the RIBA. Its front page would be arguing about spatial justice. Its its annual conference would be about actually the lack of spatial justice in the UK and be a state of the union around the environment, environmental spatial justice of, of the story. So I think this does go right to the root of, of how we cognitively structure the profession. And I think that we are miscognitively structured. And, and if you talk about spatial justice, then instantly you're talking, in my view, I think you're talking about spatial justice from multiple perspectives, multiple points of view, and the plurality of needs that are required in society. And I think that changes us quite fundamentally. So I would almost go to that root cause again as a mechanism to answer. And then there are loads and loads of practical... Um, I, I don't want diversity to be a SOP. Diversity is not a SOP. It's a point of intelligence. Uh, it's, it's, it's not a political game. It's a point of actually unlocking the maximum capacity of society. Um, and it's about multiple perspectives which make us smarter. Neurodiversity makes us smarter as a collective system. So I think in, this isn't a sort of a loss-making story, a kind of a, some beneficial story, or let's give us, you know, let's be a little bit more fair on a moral perspective. I think this is about actually us as society, including the whole value of society in a way that's deeply profound, but it does go, I would say, to the heart of the profession and what are we standing for? Are we standing for the spatial justice of, of citizens or are we standing for the theory of good design structured by capital? Indy was talking about the, the institutions needing to really look in the mirror and look at uh, spatial justice. Uh, when, when we're talking about the RIBA here, actually, um, Jeremy, can you clarify who, who do you have in your mind um, when, when we're discussing the institutions of the profession? Oh, I don't really want to answer that one because I'll probably get rude. Um, 
So <laughs> let me let me just pick up India's incredibly important point about the confusion about the role of the RIBA, and it's kind of it's presenting itself in terms of of the promotion of so-called good design, when actually when you look at it, the good design is normally valued in the reward system through a kind of form of polite and refined modernism. But where I can be optimistic is a, is a piece of work that was chaired by Peter Oborn, which Indy was involved in, which is the RIB Ethics and Sustainable Development Commission. I'm just gonna read out the first thing which they say, because this is the way forward. This would crack much of what Indy has said. RIBA Council, so this is approved by RIBA Council, reasserted the Institute's unequivocal commitment to placing public interest, social purpose, ethics, and sustainable development at the heart of its activities. So my call, and I think India would agree with me on this, is to hold the RIBA Council accountable and responsible to deliver exactly that commitment. And if they did that, then much of what you're trying to do, Marsha, would come with it in terms of public interest, in terms of ethics, in terms of diversity, not as a token thing, but as a way of seeing the world in a, in a much more inclusive and generous manner. And so that's, that's what I would say, that's where the Institute should be holding itself accountable. You both mentioned this idea of, of ego and it's been quite an ego driven um, uh, profession and that idea of self-awareness is very much key to being um, successful at mit mitigating uh, the impact of, of hidden bias, uh, which which we all have. Um, how do how do we break something like that when it's so inherent in the architectural education system? Indy, I'm going to point that one to you. Uh, I, I suppose I'm not. I think. I think we just. I, I suppose I'm very just conscious of just being nuanced about all this stuff. Um, I think it's. So when I talk about ego, I mean it from a philosophical sense, not a kind of just. We all have ego, right? So what I talk about is a design strategy which is based on selling individuals and the to there's a design and economy based on actually individualization the heroization of work in a very particular way and that has a very particular way of organizing it so i, I don't want to sit here lambasting individual architects because i i think they they're just a function of the system that's generated in the media system actually they that relies i mean what was it i i was part um we we were we did the wiki house and uh, ted turned around and said well we can't put up your whole community we can only put up one person right um because they said, well, only one person really can represent this. So the media system actually also centralizes the construct egos and takes huge effort to actually go counter those positions. So I, I, I think we just have to be careful about about this stuff to not, you know, not not do a kind of very simple ego bashing story or whatever design bashing story. Because I think this is a system scale problem and it requires system scale responses from all partners. So I just wanted to say that, that I think it's it's important that we, I, I you know, I, I do think you're right about unconscious bias. I think the unconscious bias occurs because of many, many factors. One, I think the economics of architecture is fundamentally problematized, which means that actually people are making pretty poor decisions generally. Forget about for diversity, they're just making generally poor decisions because of the economics of architecture. Secondly, and that means that actually recruitment and 
every organization I know, most organizations I know are small, so that actually recruitment infrastructure is just isn't strong enough. The investment in the recruitment infrastructure isn't strong enough, which means that actually addressing these questions is not there. So this is genuinely a system scale problem, which is actually rooted in the deep economics and mission and media system of architecture at that level which then I think is perpetuating a very particular model of architecture and also the capital structure, who commissions architecture, you know, when, you know, so there, there is a whole scale issue, which I think is really worth us reflecting on, because I think, I think it requires us to be honest about that and then work in a really smart way to deal with that. And it requires new protocols, right? You know, so if, if you're publishing a, if you're publishing a building, you would always credit all the all the people involved. You'd invite, you know, all sorts of subtle things reduce the ego infrastructure of architecture and highlight the collaborative framework of that of that piece as well. And that also drives a different form of intelligence and capability in that system. So I'll leave stuff. I'm sure Jerry Jeremy's far more eloquent than me on this. Jeremy, well, just to pick up on on what you said about education. So the whole education model is predicated on the individual. But what the RIBA comes to look at is the lowest pass portfolio and then the top ones. They get obsessed about the lowest pass portfolio of an individual. Now, that individual may not be very good at drawing pictures, which is how what a portfolio is, but they may have fantastic negotiating skills or they may have fantastic organisational skills. But those aren't credited or, more importantly, fantastic group working skills. So the, the whole system of education is indeed predicated on, on the individual performance, which then sets a set of dominoes going in relation to how the profession values itself and, and structures itself. So I think it does, it does start in education. So when I want to put forward the whole of Sheffield MArch for the RIBA Silver Medal on the grounds of their life projects, which I thought at the time were quite extraordinary as a collaborative effort, it was dismissed out of hand, so we're not allowed to do that because we only look at individuals. Luckily, about five years ago from London Met, a, a group was, was awarded the IBA Silver Medal, so there's a bit, of, a bit of scope there. But we do need to look at the structures and values of architecture education too. Jeremy Till and Indy Johar about organisational and, and self-awareness. Baroness uh, Doreen Lawrence, she needs very, very little introduction. Her son, Stephen, was an ins- aspiring architect before he was murdered. And she's been working with the RIBA and in the architecture profession ever since to highlight the issues of race in the sector and to support young people with with potential to enter the profession. And she really very kindly agreed to spare her time so she could share her experience with the profession and insight with you. After Stephen's death, um, I think how society how they view um, people within the black community and young black men especially. And the fact of how Steve was murdered, it seems to me that nobody was really interested. Um, and Steve wasn't just the only young black um, boy that to have been murdered before him. And so Stephen become one of many. And I felt that I needed to, I presume be his voice now because he no longer had a voice. So I start challenging um, the police, the justice system of how they investigate, um, you know, racial murder, especially around my son. And so um, without me actually knowing how far I would get with it, I was just being a a thorn because, you know, the fact that how my son was murdered and nobody wanted to know, society did not want to know, the government did not want to know. 
And so that is where my journey started. Do you think the conversation around racism has changed much in the last couple of years? Yes, the conversation definitely has changed, um, especially when you look at what happened around um, George Floyd and um, Black Lives Matters. Once upon a time, that would never have happened here. You know, the march that took place around Black Lives Matters. There's been marches over the years of people after the Newcastle fire and other racial incident. There has been marches, but um, nothing has made the impact as what happened, especially during the COVID, when people were supposed to be locked down in their houses, people took to the streets because, you know, they were so passionate about wanting to see change happen um, within the black community. And you've taken that sort of emotion, that passion and that need for a change and justice to to create a number of different um, uh, initiatives so that we can have some kind of racial justice in our world. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about some of those actions that you've taken, uh, especially around the creation of the foundation and the trust? Well, um, the trust was created back in 98, and, and now we've got moved away from the trust, and now we've got the foundation. But initially, it was around looking at um, architecture, because that's what Steve wanted to um, go into. And how do we support young black, especially men, into achieving what their ambitions were to become an architect? So by having discussions and set up the Stephen Lawrence um, architectural bursary, and talking to the RFB at the time, which was um, Marco Goldschmidt, who was a president back in 98. And from there, I started to talk to even the Architectural Association, the AA, and where we've had students studying there as well um, to become architect. So it's all those uh, initiative that I felt was important for, um, for me to have and for students to understand about, some of them about architecture and also the practices because I think practices wasn't wasn't really engaging that much with our black students. So they would finish their first degree, not, have, not being able to have a placement, and then into the part two and the part three. So it's really difficult for students. So it's having those dialogue and start raising those issues. I think that seems to have made a difference. And you know, as I say, the students that um, who come into the um, the trust at the time, it's it's by word of mouth. They've heard about the trust, heard about the bursary that we were providing, and it's trying to link all those two things together with the practices, because without the practices, the students are studying, but they're not able to move forward. And so many students will drop out after their first degree. They're not able to get um, um, to do a placement. So those sort of things I was trying to change, and it has changed over the years. When you first started um, with that work in, in architecture, how did practices respond to your highlighting the fact that there may be an issue with race here? And um, it was very poor. I must say it was very poor to get, you know, because, you know, like um, white students will have um, the connection of their parents, whether, whether they're an architect themselves or know somebody, whatever it is, practice to help. I think for black kids, they find it really difficult because they, they don't have that background. And so trying to engage with practice, I mean, so there's quite a few practices who are beginning to engage with us and give us some fund to, um, to able to support students. So it was hard. It, I'm going to say, you know, I think the first students we ever supported were students in Jamaica. 
because they heard about us and students over there was still have the same problem, not having um, the financial support in order to get them to the next stage of their, you know, their masters or whatever. And so we were able to give them some money. And so those are the first students to um, to graduate was in Jamaica. And as time's gone on, because I wanted to be able to support students in Jamaica. That's where I was born and where Stephen's buried. South Africa, because of the support I had from Nelson Mandela during the early stage of our campaign to get justice for Stephen. And of course, this country where Stephen was born. So we had these three things going on. And over the years, we were able to do all three up until the recession started when getting funding was really difficult. So we weren't able to support Jamaica or South Africa anymore, which was really sad because, you know, for me, that was why that was really important. I wanted to continue that, but financial um, stopped me from doing that. And I'm trying to eventually, so I went to visit South Africa a couple of years ago to try and make that link again, you know, because we had, we had about five students studying in Cape Town. So, you know, I think, you know, Stephen's name has made a difference, not just in this country, but, you know, internationally as well. So what, in terms of like that, that sort of dialogue now changing, not only in the way that architectural practices, the way that they were, but that whole context of speaking about race being different now, what? What more should architectural practices and members be doing in order to support not only, you know, causes like the, the Stephen Lawrence Foundation, but generally supporting racial justice as an idea? I think they just need to open their doors even more and, and see, I mean, the students who are studying uh, a university, they need to start making visits and encouraging students to say, you know, this is who we are. And this is, you know, we, we are a firm of architects and we, we'd like to invite you to come and visit us. So I think they just need to open their doors more. I don't think enough of them is doing that. I think sometimes I think they may want to do that, but probably they don't know how to. But, you know, and that's where I think the foundation is probably is best place to help support that because we've, we've got a reputation, we've got a name and people recognize that. And so does other practices, you know, and so I think sometimes the RIBA probably need to step out of, out of his comfort zone and start looking at how to engage with people from ethnic minority. And he, I mean, so there's ethnic minority firms or out there? How does the RIBA engage with them? So those are the sort of things I think they are, they just step out of their comfort zone and start looking at ways and see how they can support and promote racial equality. So what do you and what, do, what does the foundation do to support um, or, and, and help practices and architects with the, with the how to be better at engaging with um, underrepresented racialized groups um i just might need to point out that the foundation is really new so we just we just sort of existed um in just over a year so we're quite new and so our first link now is with the london school of architects that's where our first link is has started which we want to promote a bit more and and as we have the three c's which is classroom community and careers is to build on our career side around the architectural side of things so that we can start engaging again because i think as i said because the foundation is new we've not been 
able to engage as much. And plus the pandemic has happened. So those sort of things have put a stop to a lot of things that we could have done. So now as things begin to open up a bit more, is how do we start? Um, and I mean, so it doesn't need us to get in touch with practices. They need to get in touch with us also to say, these are the opportunities that we have. Because why should we the one that keeps banging on your door? You can come knock on our door and say, this is the opportunity that we have here. Can you um, help us to engage with um, students who want to become architects or who are studying at the moment and need placement? So, you know, it's a two-way street. And I like to see the um, practices start engaging with us. And so uh, once you've done that, uh, how do you measure how successful you are at uh, engaging, you know, practices with with uh, underrepresented racialized groups and, and pushing them towards architecture? I think that all depends on how the students um, are, are feel comfortable, because I think they're the ones the word of mouth can go out. And I think once um, between the foundation and, and the students who are taking part and the practice, they can, they can sort of hold their hand up and say, here we are, this is what we're doing. And for us as a, an organisation to start um, highlighting on our website, so we're engaging this way. And that's how you can start making those um, those impacts. If you don't have so people outside can see what you're doing, then you can work as hard as you can, but nobody knows knows what's going on. So, you know, I want to be able to engage, use our website, use whatever things that means that we have to promote where um, companies are engaging with us and for them to see us as where to say, if you want to know more about how to engage with young people, look at look at the Stephen Lawrence Foundation and see what they're doing. So any sort of looking back as well at the, the work that you've done with the trust, um, any really good sort of outcomes that you, you like to think about and reflect on? We've had brilliant outcome because we have students, well, they're, they're not students anymore, they're practicing architects, who set up their own firm. And, and so they're engaging. And, and even at um, the Sterling Prize um, last month, I bumped into one of our students who is engaging and is part of the, um, the RIBA. I can't remember exactly what her position is, but she's part of the RIBA now. So that's a really good story that the RIBA can promote of what they're doing to support um, students and for us to know that she had studied in Stephen's name. So there's, there's a good a good story out there. And um, in terms of what the uh, future holds for the foundation, continuing to to ask people about, you know, the, the impact that they're they're making and joining some dots, you know, what would you say? Is, is the future and what do you what are your hopes for racial justice architecture the riba um for me as i mentioned about the three c's so looking at the um education the, the community and the careers we've just appointed um a, a new project manager because as i say we're quite new so we're taking steps to make sure that we have um been the right position to support wherever we can which is what our project manager will be doing so we'll be engaging with the riba more than what we've done in the last year because we've not had been the position to do that so as we go forward is how do we i think for me is finding that position that we can now 
you know, because I think unless you have somebody helping you to do all of that, you just stay in one place. As we progress into the future, that's how I see the foundation. The Steve Lawrence Day is going to be next um, next year, April. And so we're engaging with the um, De Montfort University. We've got Steve Lawrence Centre. They already, and there's an archives there. So there's many things. Um, I mean, so we were engaging with the police cadets. That's something we're going to continue to do with the fire cadet. And the Princess Trust we've been engaging with, and we're going to continue to do that. So there's a, the variety of things that we've done already, and we want to build on that, because I think that's how come we can make a difference as a, as a, as a foundation. And for people to see that as an organisation, we are making steps to address equality, address racism, and address um, and working with government and, and, and the broader community so that, you know, that young people can feel that they are part of society rather than just outside looking in. Baroness Doreen Lawrence. You're listening to Reba Radio. Real inclusive, brilliant action. You can join the Reba wherever you work in the built environment by heading over to architecture.com to find out more.